Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the Executive Director of Waypoint Church Partners, and I'd like to share with you what Waypoint is doing all around the Mid-Atlantic region. It was two years ago when two organizations, the Virginia Evangelizing Fellowship and Envision in North Carolina, merged to become Waypoint Church Partners. And church planting was at the core of both of those organizations. And now we're taking that shared value to an even higher level. Through the financial support of more than 150 churches around the region, we're able to plant a record six new churches churches this year. And the attendance on opening day for those six new churches should average more than 200 per church plant. The addition of these six new churches brings the total number of projects that we've been involved with to 40 since 1990. Among all of our existing church plants, the weekly attendance on normal Sundays averages more than 300 per church plant. Two of those churches uh, average more than 1,000 on a Sunday, and one another one averages more than 2,000. This past Easter, the combined attendance of all of our existing church plants was nearly 15,000 people, which translates to more than 500 people per church. But here's the deal. We're not just shuffling the sheep or shifting the saints with our new churches. We place a high value on our new churches reaching new people for Christ. One metric that best describes or demonstrates this is that our new churches have celebrated more than a thousand baptisms in the last two years alone. There's no better way to invest your evangelism dollars than through the ministry of starting new churches. But what sets Waypoint apart from all the other evangelizing associations in our movement is that we're also serving the more than 500 established Christian churches and churches of Christ in our region and their leaders. We accomplish this through intentional pastor care, no interest loans, peer learning cohorts that we call fusion groups, now 35 of them around the region, hiring, consultation, and coaching, monthly ministry-related webinars, training seminars, and a bevy of other strategic services that we provide to help churches get on mission and stay on mission. Here's the secret sauce to Waypoint Church Partners. We're better together. We can do far more partnering together than we could ever do as individual churches. So stay tuned to see what God continues to do in our region as we partner together. Well, uh, good morning. It is kind of spooky to introduce yourself via video and then come on live. I uh, don't know how that works there, but uh, it's great to be here this morning, be back at Velocity. Sorry, I didn't go all the way back on my message from first service. It's a long sermon, apparently. All right. Uh, I'm really uh, grateful to be here and uh, to be back in uh, Shore Pump. My wife and I driving uh, here this morning. I uh, realized it was uh, three years ago this week that we sold our house and uh, we moved up into the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, so we drove in this morning and it's beautiful. The leaves are finally uh, changing and it's a beautiful drive. It's great to be back here and we're glad to be here. We uh, left Velocity three years ago and I became the executive director of Waypoint. And I want to tell you a little bit about that before I get into my message today. And uh, just because uh, it's pretty significant what you're helping us do, that Waypoint is just a, a collection of several churches, about 150 churches that, get, that do more together than we ever could all by ourselves. And so, is that me going crazy? All right. Uh, yeah, there we go. I'm used to it. Uh, 
So uh, you're helping us uh, start uh, six new churches this year is what was said in that uh, video, and that's uh, pretty significant. We've never started more than three in one year, and so it's a big year for us. Uh, I've got some pictures of just those six. Here's all the ones that we've been a part of, including Velocity. Here's one that we, the first one that we started uh, in February. It was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm a Duke fan. I don't know about you, but Duke basketball. So Chapel Hill's like a mission field. The Chapel Hill needs lots and lots of uh, churches, I think. And so uh, we started one there, and they had uh, 225 on opening day in two services. Then the next month, we started one in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And if you've ever been in the military, particularly in Marines, you know where Jacksonville is, the home of Camp Lejeune. And uh, demographically, it is America's youngest city. Uh, mostly because it's all 19-year-old Marines. And so we got a really young church planter there, started Restore Church, and, and uh, they, they had 200 on opening day. And uh, then the next one uh, was one in Fuquay, Verena, uh, North Carolina, the western suburb of Charlotte. And they had 356 people on opening day there. It was uh, pretty significant. They're doing great. Uh, then we started one three, four weeks ago, one, one, one month ago today, in uh, Columbia Heights, Washington, D.C., which is, if you know D.C., it's right near the National Zoo. It's uh, the D.C.'s most ethnically diverse borough of all the boroughs of D.C. And so uh, they had 190 on opening day, very ethnically diverse crowd. And then the, the last one just started three weeks ago was Collective Church in Frederick, Maryland. They had 270 on opening day. And so the churches that you're helping to start average 240 on opening day so far. We've got one more church that's launching in a couple of weeks as well. And uh, so uh, that's something that you can be proud of, that you're part of a church that's not just about this church, but it's about making a significant impact in, in the region. So I'm glad that Waypoint uh, is, uh, is made up by churches like yours and particularly, particularly uh, Velocity. I lost my page again. It's going crazy on me. And so... Um, I'm getting so old that my font is like 87, so there's three words per page is, what, is the way this works. And so I want to talk about, I was here about a year ago, and, and I want to talk about why in the world uh, I would leave a church like this, a great church like Velocity, to be a part of an organization that started Velocity, uh, but uh, where we're starting more and more churches. What's the big deal about that? And, and uh, why, why are we starting more church? Why? Why are we starting more churches in the first place? And uh, there, when I got here early this morning, there were a bunch of people back in the back getting ready and setting things up, and they do that week after week. And there may be a place, hopefully, that, that you found that you serve in this church and volunteer. And so why do you do that every week? What's, what's the point of all that? And uh, you give uh, financially to this church. Uh, and uh, you, hopefully you tithe or give sacrificially to this church. And why would people do that? I mean, what's the, what's the point of that? And uh, you would invite your friends to come join you at this church, or at some point some friend thought it was important enough that they would invite you to come to this church. Why would they do that? What's the point of the, this church? And so I want to talk about that a little bit today. And, uh, but I want to do that. I could talk about it mathematically speaking. And uh, if you know me, uh, I was not only a, a ministry major in college, but a math major, which is a really odd combination because most preachers are horrible at math. Let's just put it that way. And so I love math. I used to teach high school math. And so I love, but most people hate it. So I'm only going to give you one statistic. I gave it the last time I was here, but it helps us understand kind of the numbers of why we might want to plant more and more churches because we've got a lot of them already. And so the statistic kind of goes like this. In 30 years, if this generation follows suit, half of all people attending any church in America will be attending a church that's less than 30 years old. Does that make any sense? You have to do a little bit of a little bit of math in your head to figure out how that works. Another way that we could say that would be today in America, 
half of all people attending church are sitting in a church that has been started since 1987. That 1987 is kind of the median of attendance in Church of America as far as the age of the church goes. And that's been true for the last couple generations, two or three generations. Probably the best way that we could put this would be this. The implication is that in 30 years, in the year 2047, half of all people attending a church in America are going to be attending a church that we have not yet started. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Half the people attending a church, if this generation follows suit, will be in a church that we have not yet started. And so it's critical that we start great new churches like this one all over the place for for people to find a place where they can know Christ, find a significant place in the kingdom. And so we're glad that Waypoint's part of that, something you can be proud of, and I'm glad that you're helping us do that. But today I don't want to talk about numerically about that or demographically. I want to look at this passage in Luke chapter 15 and, and talk about it from a biblical perspective, that, uh, that Jesus' perspective on the why is really important. And I have to be honest, this is the first time I've preached this sermon as a preacher that gets to go to a different s- church every Sunday. I have the luxury of only needing one good sermon. And, uh, and so that's awesome, except I've already preached it here. And so uh, I had to write a new sermon to come to, to Velocity because I re- I'm convinced that you all remember every single word of the last time I preached here. It was so memorable. And I, but I preached about why we should be planting more churches. And so I needed a sequel to the sermon that I preached last time that I could take with me here and other places. And so, um, and so I was at one of our launch days from one of the photos that you saw. And the preacher there preached from Luke chapter 15. And I thought, that's, that's the text I want to use for the sequel to my sermon. So with his permission, I'm adapting some, some chunks of his sermon uh, to create the sequel that I'm going to deliver today. So you're the first ones. They didn't even record it first hour. So this is being recorded for the very first time. You guys are it. And so if this is a really uh, good sermon, it's because I'm a good preacher. And if it's a really bad sermon, it's because he's a bad sermon writer. Uh, that's why that's the way that works. So we're going to dive into this at Luke 15 and uh, talk about um, w- the why. And so uh, if you'll open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, um, we'll dive right into Luke 15. The Bible records, now the tax collectors and the sinners, all right, you see, here's who we're talking about. The tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They muttered. I, I love that word. I have no idea what the Greek word is, uh, but that's a great English word. They, they, they muttered at, at Jesus, and they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here's the opening verse, kind of figure out where things are going. And the Pharisees are judging Jesus because of the people he's hanging out with, the people he's having dinner with. And I think Jesus' response to them as we get in the next verses is pretty fascinating because he doesn't respond to their complaint head on. Instead, he chooses to tell two parables that give us his response to their muttering about him spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And I think the lesson that he teaches them is important for us today. And so verse 3 continues. Here's what he told them. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and, rejo- and, and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Then he tells the second parable. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner 
who repents. And so there's a point to Jesus telling these two par- ter- parables. And the point is this, that you have to understand that sheep were valuable possessions in that day. Sheep were valuable possessions. Uh, their econ- in their economy, sheep were expensive. Your net worth was often calculated by the number of sheep that you owned. And a whole village might have owned only 100 sheep that Jesus is describing here. And so your family may have only been able to afford one of those 100 sheep. Sheep were valuable in that economy. And the shepherds that watched the sheep were, were recruited from out of the village. And so uh, even the local economy was created and sustained by the sheep. Sheep were valuable in this story. And the 10 coins in the second parable uh, were thought to represent a woman's wedding dowry, kind of her inheritance or her, her uh, retirement. And without a safe deposit box that she could put her 10 coins in, uh, the ladies would often wear them around their neck as a, as a necklace because that's how valuable that they were to them. And so the central point of both of these parables that Jesus tells is this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the the religious people at the time, were judging people for spending time with a group of people they didn't consider worthy enough or religious enough for them to spend their time with Jesus. And they're saying, uh, they're not worthy enough, they're not religious enough for us to spend our time with them either. And so Jesus, he kind of takes this spiritual prejudice and turns this on his head uh, because in these two parables, he's comparing the lost sheep and the lost coin with the people that he's spending time with. And uh, what he's saying is very clear from these, these passages. In the, same, in the same way that one lost sheep is valuable enough for the shepherd to go after, and in the same way that one lost coin was, uh, was valuable enough to the woman for her to turn her house upside down, for the tax collectors and sinners in this account, they were valuable enough to Jesus that he'd want to spend his time with them. Think about that. That's how valuable they were to Jesus. That's the point that he's making. And so here's the the general point that he's making for all of us. People are valuable to God. People are valuable to God, even those who are far from them. And I think that's a pretty important important message for us to hear today because I think in our day, uh, God is generally either interpreted to be either antagonistic or aloof. One or the other. He's either antagonistic or aloof. If there even is a God, he's clearly detached from the world, and that's why we see all the strife and, um, and tragedy that's happening in the world today over and over again in the news that we see every day all around the world. And he's, or if, um, if he's not detached from reality, he's, he's against humanity, or at least parts of it. And that would explain all the strife and tragedy that we see in the news every day. But what we see here is that Jesus himself is communicating exactly how God feels about people. God is not indifferent. God is not antagonistic towards humanity. He actually sees humanity as valuable. And not only the good enough people or the religious enough people, but everybody. Everybody is valuable to God. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that a shepherd would go after lost sheep, and in the same way that a woman would flip her house upside down for a lost coin, is the exact same way that God longs for and goes after humanity. All of it. All of humanity. Even those who are far from him. Even those people who are lost. And that's the word he uses. I think we have to be very careful when we use that word lost because, to be honest, it kind of bothers me how it comes across sometimes. Some religious people, often well-intentioned ones, uh, sometimes talk about people who are outside of the faith and kind of condescendingly use this word that they're lost. 
Have you ever heard that? But when you hear the story, you realize that the way this term loss started being used in the first place was not like that at all. Predictably in the story, the religious elites are the condescending ones, but not Jesus. Jesus, the one who coins the term lost, sees lost people he's spending time with as people of worth and dignity. Because for Jesus, lost means valuable. In these parables, we understand that for Jesus, lost means valuable. And then the, the implication is very obvious. When you lose something very valuable, you'll spend, spare no effort and pay whatever cost you have to in order to get it back. If it's not worth very much, you're not going to spend any time. But the more valuable it is, the more urgent you are to find it. I think there's another reason that Jesus is telling us here about, uh, about uh, why you would spare no effort. It's not only because of how valuable people are to God, but because of what inevitably, happen, inevitably happens to people when they're far away from God. Uh, in this account, Jesus goes on and he tells a third parable that kind of explains this about what happens. In verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This is a Jewish boy feeding pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so this parable that Jesus gives tells us the other side of the story, not from the perspective of the shepherd who owns a sheep or of a woman who owns a coin, but instead from the point of view of the lost item itself. In this story, the item isn't an item. The item is a person. The item is a son. And what we see happens to the son is that the son is lost to the father. He's actually lost to himself. as He's kind of lost to life. And he keeps making wrong turns all the time. And what Jesus is teaching us with this third parable is that this is exactly what happens to people. It's exactly what happens to humanity when they're away from the Father. You see how that works? This is exactly what happens to humanity when they're away from their Heavenly Father. It's not only that humanity is far from God and that God, God will, misses us and He wants to hang out with us. That's kind of a relational thing. It's way deeper than that. The problem is that humanity without God uh, descends into entropy at best, more likely depravity. When we're away from God, things just go bad, don't they? And so maybe a third explanation for all the strife and tragedy that we see in the world today is not that God is aloof or that he's antagonistic, but maybe it's simply a result of a world that's far from God, far from the Heavenly Father. And if that's true, then you need to understand, what we need to understand today is that not only do we need to be found, but we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. And when you understand this principle, the whole passage takes on a new connotation when we hear, hear it with those lenses on. Then you begin to understand the urgency with which the shepherd looked for the sheep and the urgency with which the woman looked for the coin and the urgency with which the father longed for his son. Because this idea of rescue is ingrained in our DNA as humans, isn't it? We, we love the idea of rescue. We tell stories about it. We write books about it. We read things on Facebook, these wonderful human life interest stories about rescue. We make movies about it, don't we? 
Uh, maybe you remember that there was a loose adaptation of this prodigal son story in Hollywood recently, and uh, where there was a there was a son, and he and he uh, he left his father and ran away, and then his father had to go searching for him all the way around the world and risking all kinds of things to try and bring his son home. Do you remember what the movie was? There you go, Finding Nemo, right? That's one of those stories of rescue. We, we love these. And then there's, there's uh, more stories like that, from the soldier that's lost behind enemy lines to the, um, the astronaut that's left stranded on Mars, which on a side note leads us to the, the following conclusion. From Saving Private Ryan to Interstellar to The Martian, I think America has spent a ridiculous amount of money trying to save Matt Ryan, or, uh, Matt Damon. Don't you? Uh, somebody did the math I saw online. Somebody did the math and calculated all the money that we've had to spend in America uh, to retrieve Matt Damon and all his movies, and it came out to some ridiculous about like $900 billion. And so I think America could like wipe out half of its national debt if we could just convince Matt Damon to stay home. Don't you? He could, he could uh, binge watch Netflix and have Amazon fresh deliver groceries to his door, and we'd all be a lot better off. But when you look at these movies that we love and you, t you step back and take a look at them a little bit objectively, I think all of us could say that the plot of these stories is irresponsible, that the cost is way too much and the risk is way too high. Uh, but if you did that, all these movies would last like 10 minutes and no one would go see them because they wouldn't be very good movies. Uh, the, the reason that these movies were hits, the reason we love these movies and we watch them over and over again is because there's something deep inside the human heart that resonates with the idea of rescue, because we recognize the value of a human life, don't we? God put it in our hearts. And when we understand the extent to which love will go, when you love someone, you're gonna do whatever it takes and risk whatever needs to be risked to get that person back. And so when you understand this, these passages like Luke 15 take on a whole new meaning. It's not only because the shepherd searches and searches, and it's not only because the woman uh, cleans very carefully in, a, in her house, but they searched until. Did you notice that that word was in both of those parables? Verse 4 said, doesn't he leave the 90 and 9 in the open country and go after the sheep until he finds it? And in verse 8, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And the operative word in both of these stories, these parables that Jesus tells, is the word until. And when you lose something very valuable to you, you'll do whatever it takes, risk whatever you need to do until you find it. Years ago, I lost my Palm Pilot for several days and couldn't find it for, uh, for, for days. Do you, any of you remember Palm Pilot? Did any of you ever own a Palm Pilot? Some of us did. Uh, fellow geeks that own a Palm Pilot. Paul, back in the day, if you're too young to remember, you had to, you had to carry two devices with you. You would carry your PDA, your personal digital assistant, and your flip cell phone. And so you had to carry, and I believe that, uh, that Palm Pilots were invented, uh, that, that, that smartphones were invented because of Palm Pilots. And uh, not so much because of their breakthrough technology, but because uh, you look like a total geek if you were carrying a Palm Pilot. Or at least that's what my wife kept calling me when I carried mine. And uh, so uh, I, Steve Jobs invented the smartphone, I think mostly so you could look cooler and not have to carry a Palm Pilot and be heckled by your wife. She's out of here now, so I can say that. 
Well, I lost my Palm Pilot, and I searched and searched for days. And we turned our house upside down. We looked everywhere, couldn't find it. And finally, I, I discovered that what had happened, it had fallen out of my pocket when I was in my car and in that slot between the chair and the console, you know what I'm talking about? But it fell so far down that you couldn't get at it in any way from above. But then I'd go underneath the seat, and it hadn't come down underneath the frame far enough that I could get at it from below. And so what I had to do is I had to get my socket set out and get in there underneath and take the seat completely out of my car to get at the Palm Pilot. Now, why would I do that? Why would I go to all that trouble to get my Palm Pilot? Because I'm a geek, right? Uh, because it was, that, it's, it was that valuable to me. When, there's something that, when you lose something that's valuable to you, you'll do whatever it takes until you get it back. And that's what Jesus is telling us in Luke chapter 15, that, uh, that you'll do whatever it takes, risk whatever you need to risk to get it back. And the fact that Jesus uh, gave up his life to rescue us, we understand that uh, for Jesus, what was his until? What did he risk until he got us back? And we realize that for Jesus, his life was his until, wasn't it? Jesus actually said this about himself in Matthew chapter 28. He said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life was his until. And the fact that Jesus gave up his life to rescue us, to bring God and humanity back together, uh, to come back home, is what inspired the followers of Jesus, the original ones, to carry that message everywhere they went. And historically, the way they uh, did that was by starting new churches in every new village, in every new neighborhood, in every new town that they could. And that's how Christianity has spread for the last 2,000 years. And that's what leads us to today and to this church and to every church that you're going to continue to help us start. Because we believe that God deeply loves humanity. They're all value, we're all valuable to him, no matter who they are. And he'll do whatever it takes to get us back. It's as simple as that. And as followers of Jesus, we urgently carry on that message of Jesus inviting humanity back to God, back to the Father, inviting us to come back home. Maybe you remember back in the early 1990s, there was a, a fairly bloody civil war in the African country of Uganda. And uh, it was, an, it was a, based on the ethnic hatred uh, between the north and the south. And up in the north part of Uganda, there was a, a particularly um, brutal, small rebel militia, which I think was unfortunately called the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA. And I don't know what the Lord had to do with it, but it was led by this guy named uh, Joseph Kony. And uh, he was a self-declared prophet whose leadership earned him the nickname Africa's David Koresh. And the LRA was accused by the United Nations of widespread human rights violations, including murder, abduction, mutilation, child sex, slavery, and forcing children to participate in hostilities. And one of the ways that they would re recruit new soldiers into the army would be to abduct 10 to 12-year-old boys, like, like this one, and from one village, and they'd abduct them, and then they would force them to commit atrocities on people from another village, usually murder. And by doing this, they held their young soldiers captive, not so much physically, uh, but, uh, but mentally and emotionally, by telling the young boys, you can now never go back home. You can't go home. After what you've done, your parents will never want you back. Actually, your parents are going to hate you, and they'll probably kill you if you go back home. 
And during the height of this conflict, there was a guy named John LaCombelle who started a show at a local radio station simply titled, Come Back Home. And the concept of the weekly radio station, Come Back Home, was simple. LaCombelle, we've got a photo of him here, um, would host parents of the abducted children on his weekly radio show. And the parents would just make a plea on the air to their kids to defect from the LRA and to come back home. And radio was the only thing that the LRA got in some of the remote places that they occupied, and so they would listen to the show, and it started working. Some of the young soldiers started defecting from the LRA and, and returning home. And as the soldiers started defecting, the LRA would warn the, the remaining soldiers that it was a trap. If they went back home, they would be arrested by the Ugandan army or killed by family and friends in the community because of the horrific things that they had been forced to do. They could never go back home. So what Lacombelle did was he started having former captive soldiers that had already defected and been received back into their families uh, make their own comeback home messages. And they were inviting their former soldier mates, telling them that they too could come back home. Well, back here in the United States, a Christian organization heard about these atrocities and the child soldiers and the radio program, and they organized a benefit concert tour where the people attending the concerts were invited to partner with an organization raising funds to, to build radio towers so that the radio station running LaCombelle's show could reach even, into even more remote parts of the territory while the, where the LRA was. And you know what? I think the church is kind of like that. A new church, and this church, believe it or not, is like a radio tower broadcasting to whomever would listen that they too can come back home. Because that's the desire of the Father. It's the desire of any parent, really, isn't it? And I believe that deep within us, every one of us longs for that too. There's this moment in this parable that Jesus gave us uh, the, of the prodigal son that of all the scenes in Scripture, I find profoundly moving. It's that scene here at the end of Luke 15 where the father is seen running to welcome his son back home. And I want to kind of finish with that, uh, that passage here today. It begins in verse 17. When he, the son, came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, so the father must have been watching for him, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. And this is the only place in Scripture that God, the Heavenly Father, is ever depicted as running, and he's running to meet his son, to welcome him home. And he threw his arms around him and kissed him, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. And that's what we hope this church to be and every new church that you help to start. Another radio tower broadcasting the message from our Heavenly Father that no matter what you've done, you can come back home. And we who are in this room are just former captive soldiers telling this community that we've been welcomed home by the Father 
and they will be too. And maybe you're in this room today and you feel like you're still being held captive by the lies of the evil one. Or you feel like your Heavenly Father could never love you and never welcome you back home because some horrific things you've done in the past. And what you need to know today is this. This message of the Father that we're broadcasting today, that you too can come back home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are surprised at times by the depth that you would go to rescue us, that your until was the life of your son, Jesus. And so today we are just so moved by the fact that you would do whatever you need to do, risk whatever you need to risk to rescue us because we're that valuable to you. And so we thank you for your son, Jesus, and his life, that he was your until. And we pray in his name. Amen. You know, when I uh, went off to college, I, I uh, lived in, here in Washington, D.C., and went to college in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so it was a long drive to get home. And I'd always leave, uh, whenever I'd come home, leave after class or whatever and drive home. And so I'd get home late at night. And uh, it seemed like every time I got home, the one place I'd go, I'd go right into the kitchen and uh, I'd get a big box of Cheerios and eat like three or four bowls of Cheerios before I'd go to bed. And so my parents knew I was coming home and so they'd, they'd get up and we'd meet there in the kitchen. And it just seemed like part of our family tradition that when I came home, we'd meet in the kitchen and kind of share a little meal together, even though it was just a bunch of Cheerios. You know, every week at Velocity, we take communion. We're going to have people pass out communion here, and it's, it's kind of that family meal where we're reminded why we come home, that we eat a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice to remind, to remind us that Jesus was the until. It was his life, his body, and his blood shed on the cross that allowed us to come home. And so uh, we, we, we eat this meal together to remember that. And so they're going to, as music is played, they're going to pass out the, the bread and the juice, and you can take that and, and then uh, eat it and drink it at your own time. And I pray that you'd be thanking God for his son Jesus during this time.